Hello there, I am Wissam Jojon, the host of the show, and this is a new episode of Wine Bootcamp Podcast. I'm here with Caleb Ganser, managing partner at La Compagnie de Vins Sur Naturel. How are you doing today, Caleb? I'm amazing, Wissam. How are you? Pretty awesome. Today, we'll talk about your recent wine bootcamp, the wines of Jean-François Ganova from Jura, France. So very excited to be talking about Jean-François Genva and his wines. This was the second boot camp in the series of kind of quarterly boot camps that we do, like mailing list exclusive that I teach, you know, kind of highlighting some pretty rare, allocated, kind of expensive, fancy wines, so to speak, but wines that I think people know of, but I don't think often, you know, we, we sit down and actually taste side by side. So that's been sort of the vision for this, and this is the second installation. Now, the way that we sort of do these boot camps is that I don't want to just sit and read off material that, you know, everybody's seen online. I want to try to at least get a little bit more information either from the horse's mouth themselves or usually because these are kind of, you know, harder to get in touch with people. I usually try to find an importer or a writer or somebody who knows them firsthand so I can get as much information so that the guests, you know, when they come to the, the classes have information that doesn't hopefully exist Uh, well, we spoke on the phone, but it was very unfortunate to speak with uh, Victor Schwartz, who's the importer of Jean-Francois wines into New York. I just wanted to kind of get a feel of who, who this person is and what's their vibe and, you know, kind of who is this sort of uh, elusive creature that makes these amazing wines. You know, so he kind of went through a little bit of the story, but I mean, the story's out there. The story's been seen. Jean-Francois Ganeva, how did it all start? I mean, his family has dates back to about 1650 in the region. Uh, they kind of live in this little off-the-beaten-path a hamlet, you know, called Rotalier, and there's actually a little, like, even sub-neighborhood called La Combe, and they've been making wine since 1650s, but, you know, wine back then wasn't what it is today, so they made wine as part of their agricultural output, but it wasn't exclusive, so they would also, you know, raise cattle and make cheese, uh, they'd sell their milk to the local co-op to make Comté, which, I mean, a lot of people still do that today. Agriculture in the Jura is usually split. It's not just like monoculture where Burgundy, no one's like selling milk to make cheese. Like everybody's either growing grapes or doing something else. And in Jura, there's still like that polyculture, which is kind of cool to see. It's like one of the last regions in France, I think, that's become modern, but it still has global ramifications. I mean, You can get Comté cheese in Australia, you can drink Jura wines in Australia, New York, whatever. So that's pretty cool, but there's still a tradition in that region and the history is very much alive. And I think you see that in the wines of Jean-François Ganval. Like what he's excited about when he took over his domain was that he has like 17 indigenous grape varieties growing on his property. His family has about eight hectares. He makes a lot of different wines using those indigenous grapes. And those are in addition to Chardonnay, Sauvignon, Poussin, Trousseau, Pinot Noir, those are the grapes that like everybody kind of knows and go into the AOC wines. But he also has like Béclin and all these other crazy grapes that the AOC doesn't recognize. So he, he has to declassify down to Vin de France with a lot of these wines because he's using those grapes. He likes these grapes because they are usually like low alcohol. So like fun, fruity, glue glue sort of wines. Mm -hmm. And that's very much, I think, the style that kind of, it overlaps with what people want to drink today. How many wines he makes every year? He's definitely a crazy person. He makes like over a hundred wines. Um, like uh, there's a hundred different cuvées that he makes. I mean, and not necessarily each year he's going to make the same thing. It's just based on what he gets, right? So depending on how the harvest goes, you know, he'll make certain wines some years, maybe not others. It just depends on what he gets. But he's also been supplementing his domain wines with purchased fruit from his friends. He buys from people he knows and trusts and are doing similar farming as he's doing. Ganovat Farms, 
He was organically certified in the early 2000s and recently got biodynamic certified as well. He definitely takes farming very seriously. And he, even when he does purchase fruit, he's still buying from people who sort of have his high standards and he'll help them do harvest. He's a part of the process. It's not just like this transaction. It's very much just sort of expanding his culture. And one of the coolest things as well is that he sort of treats every cuvee individually. He wants it to be its own sort of version of itself. It's super crazy just to think about making a hundred different wines. It's like having a hundred children every year. I couldn't even begin to fathom that, but I guess, you know, his sister Anne is the one who kind of helps him keep track of all that. And so if you've ever seen the Anne and Jean-Francois Ganvat labels, that's the Nagos property stuff and the Nagos fruit. And then the Domaine Jean-Francois Ganvat is from his like eight hectares or so that he has. And there's as much love on the Domaine than Negocian, of course, right? Exactly. Before I was going to do the boot camp, I was like, well, we'll probably just do Domaine stuff because, you know, there's just this sort of the stigma against Negocian fruit. Which is unfair. When I, when I spoke to Victor, I was like, you know, how does he treat it differently? He's like, for him, it doesn't matter. He treats Negos is the same as Domain. And for him, it's a greater opportunity to show his artistic side. You know, he gets to play with Sauvignon Vert from here, or he gets to play with the Botrytis affected Gewürztraminer to make like an orange wine that he blends with Sauvignon from Jura. For him, he's just stoked to be able to play with with more colors, you know, it's like an artist who's painting with five colors and all of a sudden you give him five more. What your output becomes is, is greater than just double. It's, it's like, you know, exponentially more. That's when I decided I was like, we're definitely doing a new ghost project in this tasting because I want people to make sure they don't see any discrimination between the two because that he doesn't see that, so. When you make the decision of growing grapes outside of the laws, so when you become a winemaker and you get declassified, how big is a risk? How impactful can be down the line? Well, I think when you're making wine, especially in the old world, at least I'll say this, you know, most people are kind of trying to make AOC wine or Appalachian wine. So for example, if you lived in Burgundy, you would plant Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, or, you know, mm -hmm. there's a couple other grapes you could plant, but for the most part, those are the grapes that you can grow in that region to put out wines that at the highest level of classification. So mm -hmm. let's say, for example, you owned a plot of land in Clovujo. If you planted Riesling, you wouldn't be able to extract the most value that that land could give you by putting it in the label, right? So Clovujo has to be, you know, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, whatever. And so you're saying there's actually a reason why laws are put together and why they said, you live in Germany, you, maybe you shouldn't grow Syrah. Kind That's of, what you're I mean, saying, there's a logic behind it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's almost like a recipe. Like Appellation is a little bit like a recipe. Like you need to grow these grapes on this plot of land, treat them in a certain amount of barrels or whatever. Like it, you almost say this is how you have to do it to make wines that you can sell and market with this Appellation. Champagne's a good example. It's like you can't just put whatever you want into Champagne. You have to grow these grapes, harvest it at this time, do one fermentation, add some sugar, do a second fermentation package it in a certain way, age it for a certain amount of time. Like it's, it's a recipe. And if you follow it, you can sell wine that has the name champagne on it. And if you break the recipe, you can. And it's a lot harder if you break the recipe and sell Vin de France wines or declassified table wines. You know, the most successful form of somebody having done that was, you know, in Super Tuscan. Those wines were Vino de Tavola when they were making these blends, you know, with using international grapes. And everybody thought they were crazy. And then all of a sudden the wine started selling for, you know, hundreds of dollars a bottle and everybody else is now trying to do that too. And they actually created DOCs in Italy for those wines now because they essentially proved to the market that they're viable. In Jean-Francois' case, in the Jura, they only re legally recognize you know, a handful of grapes. So he intentionally declassifies some of his other grapes and then blends them in with you know, the indigenous grapes that aren't recognized and makes wines that still sell for a ton of money. So I mean, you certainly take a risk, but if you have the quality and you have your sort of brand and your persona or whatever, you can still sell the wines. So, but you have to try a lot harder, right? Because you can just put champagne on the marketplace and somebody's gonna buy it. 
But if you make some Van de France sparkling wine from the Champagne region, but it doesn't say Champagne, you're going to have to hustle to sell that wine. His hustle is that he just is an attention to detail farmer and makes great wines. And that way he works in the vineyard so that the wines sort of sell themselves. When you, when you say Jura, the first word that comes to my mind is oxidative wines. Yes. Am I right? Well, yeah, for sure. The most famous wines of the Jura, certainly classically, maybe a little less so now, were vin jaune, or you know, yellow wine, or intentionally aged, oxidatively uh, white wines made from Sauvignon. And so that's what, what, the, what was the most widely exported. You know, people would cook with it back in the day, but I mean, you know, it was an aperitif or something you'd have after dinner maybe as well, like digestif with cheese or something. And that's the most famous wine of the region. So to associate Jura or even Jean-Francois Ganeva with oxidative wines is not like incorrect. But I think, you know, the wines that, that Jean-Francois is making now, most of them are topped up, you know, Ouillet. Sorry, what's Ouye? Ouye. Ouye means topped up. So like yeah. if you are aging wine in a barrel, naturally it's just going to eventually lessen, right? The, the barrel soaks up a little bit of wine like, like a sponge. Evaporation gets rid of some wine, some, you know, some alcohol, what have you. So in order to kind of keep that wine from oxidizing, you have to keep topping it up. So filling it up with the same wine so that it's full and, you know, all the way to the brim. Reducing the oxygen level of the barrel, exactly. therefore less exposure to the... Exactly. Yeah. So you much more controlled exposure to oxygen through the staves of the wood and all that. And for the most part, his cuvées are all topped up. So they're very clean. They're actually quite, not, I would say angular, like they have a roundness to them, but they're not like rich and nutty. Most of them, they see very little oxygen in the grand scheme compared to Jaune or something like that. Oxidation ménager, that's what they call it. Like yes. a fancy term of... Well-managed oxygen. Exactly. Yeah. He does make vin jaune, he does make some other cuvées which do see some oxygen. Uh, we tasted the vin de Garde, or the cuvée de Garde, which is Sauvignon Chardonnay that does see some, some oxygen in the process, a little, you know, sous-voile or under floor, under the, the veil of like that yeast colony that, you know, that, that develops inside the barrels when you do let it sort of decrease in volume. So that's what makes Van Jaune famous, you know, the barrel sort of loses some of its volume and it, it fills up with air, but then also on top of the wine, there's this layer of, of yeast, you know, that lives and that sort of slows the permeation of oxygen, but it also imparts a quite unique flavor. It creates flavors inside the wine that are called like, you know, aldehydes, which formaldehyde is one, which most people kind of think it smells like, but it, it's, it almost just has this like kind of leathery thing, a little bit like glue as well, which I mean, if you've ever had like sherry, you know, Palomino, Fino, or like uh, Manzanilla style sherries, mm. that's what it smells like, because that's the similar process. Let me ask you a question, more like a technical question. What do his wines look like? Yeah, so you're starting off with organic grapes in the vineyard, which is, you know, wines are made in the vineyard, as most grape producers will say. He brings them in, you know, super clean working environment. Most of his, his barrels are all topped up for the most part. Everything is clean, hygienic in the production. So like, and he doesn't use sulfur, which he stopped using that in like 06 or something. I mean, the wines are insanely clean, especially for no sulfur. I've never had a Mauski bottle of Geneva. They're always super precise and it's, it's mind boggling, frankly, which is another risk. I mean, it's already hard enough to make great wines and then to also make great wines with no sulfur. It's just almost impossible. And that's another reason why I'm just always in awe when I open up a great bottle. Now, there's just always a precision in each wine. Like, you can tell that he had a very clear point of view when he was making each wine he makes. 
and the story is told in the glass. Wine is sort of made in two places. I mean, you grow the grapes in the vineyard and then you try to get them to be as perfect as possible. And then in the cellar, you just try to not fuck them up and convert them into this magical beverage. And you don't want anything else happening in that magical beverage. You know, you want fermentation and you want all the happy, healthy bacteria happening and you don't want the bad bacteria. And those are the things like Britannomyces and all these other things that can kind of infect a wine in a cellar and really mm-hmm. ruin an entire, not even just a year, but yeah. I mean, destroy almost all the wine uh maybe moving forward so it's hard to manage all that stuff but yeah hygiene is super important in the cellar and the best people often have i mean i'm not gonna say always i mean you see some dirty cellars and you're like wow how do you make great wine out of here but for the most part you've got to have a clean cellar and keep it tight yeah it must be challenging to keep it so clean i wanted to talk about cota barrels I was wondering what kind of philosophy what kind of techniques they use because those guys are also killing it and it's pretty natural yeah And it, it, They're coming to town soon. We could probably it's maybe set up an interview. That would be amazing with them. Yeah. That's well, perfection, huh? Yeah, we should try to do that. It's crazy. You go to the, the basket range and the people making wine there are... I mean, they're tremendous at what they do. But well, the price you pay also for a bottle, I guess that... Sure. You know, they're not cheap wines, but... It's also, I guess what I was going to say is that you'd be surprised at how sort of rudimentary and basic a lot of these production houses are. They're not these, you know, huge warehouses or anything that are like, you know, about a thousand people working there sanitizing things all the time. I mean, they're quite uh, startup vibes, you know. Right. And they're putting out some really great wines. I do know there was so, so many farmers in Jura that also makes wine, I guess. I love your Instagram bio. Farmers are the rock stars. I mean, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't have great products to sell. You know what I mean? Like, and people who are passionate about what they're putting, you know, what their life's work is. What we do, I mean, we're, we're middlemen, you know. And we give it, I think, a final resting place, you know. We, we allow wine bottles to die with dignity. You know, you try to have the wines be stored at the right temperature and have nice glassware and good food to accompaniment so that you can just let the wine shine. It's going to be consumed somewhere. It could be consumed in a back alleyway. It could be consumed in a white room in the middle of who knows. Or it can be consumed among friends in a comfortable place that well-lit, has some good music and... You know. Bring a good story to the table and then exactly. you get to go. That's what winemakers want. They want to make sure that their wines end up in the right place and that the right people are drinking them in the right context. And this is their life's work and that's the reason why they do what they do. Wine is, it is a luxury. I mean, it's a grocery, but it's a luxury too. I mean, it's, you don't need wine to live fundamentally, but it's really, it definitely enhances life in my opinion. And you want to make sure that when they drink it, they're having a good time. You brought a bottle of wine I see in the table? I did. We What got a little wine this? to taste. Um, so this is With a this? wine that we tasted from uh, the tasting. We did it as the second part of the lineup. Yeah. Uh, the first wine we did was the Cuvée Ailleurs, which is mostly Riesling with some Sauvignon Vert. So a little bit of, that's the Negociant property. Then we did the Sous la Roche. So this like is Domaine, huh? This is technically Domaine, <laughs> but um, it's seemingly made from a sub-strain of Sauvignon called Sauvignon Vert which actually, I kind of liked it when we tasted it. And we tasted the Chalas Vieville, which is all Chardonnay. And then we tasted the Cuvée de Garde, which is 50-50 Chardonnay Sauvignon. That's the one that saw some more oxidation in the wine. What's so, up yeah. with the wax while you open the bottle? I'm just curious. Some people, yeah, this is a like class day. Nerdy, some type of question, no? Uh, some red, some yellow. Does some means anything sometimes when the... Well, so yeah, that's a good, great, great question. At the Domain, he uses yellow wax on his white wines and red wax on his red wines but some people use like you know uh, Auvernois uses like, like yellow wax and white wax and like the white wax is Chardonnay and the yellow wax is Sauvignon so it's pretty cool like there's definitely like a sub language within wax and it's like don't worry about it just like take your corkscrew you just kind of open it up just yeah. go straight through pretend like it's not even there make sure you get into the middle of the the cork though so when you pull it out you're going to make sure the whole cork yeah. comes with you mm-hmm. and then just kind of just 
go through. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. So what's the first thing you notice about the wine? It has a beautiful golden color. Yeah. A little green uh, hues, no? I think that's perfectly well described. Yeah, we, I think we said in the class, you know, it's a, sort of like a pale gold, almost even a true gold. So on the nose, what do you smell? So yeah, a little bit of lactic nose and some going towards the lees. Yeah, like yogurt lees. Almost like there's like a baking sort of thing, like dough being cooked, you know, like almost like cookies. But we skipped the fruit, like the whole, the primary aromas are sort of blended, fade into... I think that's pretty yeah. astute observation. Like for me, the wines of the Jura aren't really about fruit. It's more about those savory components. Mm -hmm. If you want a fruity wine, that's the last place I would ever recommend starting you know, selling wine from. Cool. Let's drink it. Oh, that acid. For Beautiful sure. Beautiful mouth watering. Yeah. It's, that was the one thing that people noticed about this wine specifically. It stood out like the, the acid structure is just crazy. It just, your mouth just keeps watering and watering and watering. It's a very, very pleasant acid. Almost like lemon juice, you know, it's like quite intense, but still balanced, you know, and you, it carries those flavors. And for me, like acid is kind of like the note that holds everything else. Like, the, like in the guitar, it's like just holds forever and just keeps going and going and going. You can hear a story. Your mind almost tells you a story as the wine sort of settles into your palate and goes down your throat and, you know, the acid clears. It's like you almost can't help but have like this extra sensorial experience with this wine. What a, a little minerality is going on. Is that due to the soils or is there something worth mentioning in that aspect? Minerality is kind of like, a, it's a bit of a nebulous concept and I, I definitely believe in it, but I also do think that certainly subsoil impacts flavors of wine. Like that's, there's no debating that. How much you can taste minerality in wine is debatable. Yeah. There is a sense of, of minerality here. Like you definitely feel this sort of stony rockiness and whether that's sort of the lack of fruit on the palate and sort of just like those flavors kind of being driven by acid. No, there's definitely a sense of, of this rockiness and stoniness and sort of sense of place and terroir that you feel. Well, that was a great producer. Thank you for sharing this story with us. Hey, I'm uh, always happy to, to talk about things that I love. Well, what's next for you? Is there any bootcamp coming? Any wine box that you'd like to mention? Bootcamp TBD. Still figuring out what we're going to do you know, next quarter. Um, but we'll probably have some, something fun, so stay tuned. How do I reserve those seats? Online on the website? We use Talk. It's an email list exclusive, so join our emailing, our mail list at uh, go to companynyc.com, go yeah. to contact, throw your name in there so you can get on the mailing list. Um, and that's how we put out all of our events information. That's how we do most of our communication, either there or Instagram. So these boot camps are mailing list exclusive, so you're going to want to sign up for that. Well, that's exciting. I will see you next week. See you next week. See you next month. I will, I will see you when I see you. See you later. Good day to you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys.